What did you say your fraternity was? I could have sworn you said Fido. Phi Delta. That's what the lamb chops called you, right? Okay. Jeff. Jeff's gone. No, you're here. I'm sorry I made fun of your hat in public. Should have mocked you in private. My mistake. I, I have you the had bike. It coming. I have the bike that matches. I have a Saturn. You do have a Saturn hat? I'm cool. I can get a Saturn hat. Enough. How many of you have had the enjoyable experience of putting together one of those assemble-it-yourself pieces of furniture? You get an entertainment center that comes in a box this thick, and you, you spread out all the pieces in your living room. You go through the instructions step by step, very orderly, and you get to the end, and you've got an entertainment center that looks good. It works. The TV is standing up there. It's not falling forward, and yet you've got three screws and four bolts and an unused wrench and a door left over. And where did this stuff come from? Where is it supposed to go? Why are there leftovers? I've got a bucket in my garage. And every time I put one of these things together, I add a few more pieces into the bucket, thinking that someday I'm going to need to pull something out of the bucket, a day which has not yet come, but you never know. This sermon is going to feel like one of those pieces taken out of the buckets of unused leftover bits and pieces from the Holmes on Homes sermon series that we are this morning wrapping up. Aaron called it a casserole sermon. You take bits and pieces and you throw it in a pot and heat it up and it's not high cuisine, but you got to eat. So uh, that's, I am very excited that we are going to be leaving Mike Holmes behind this morning. I've had quite enough of him. And uh, we've been using that TV show as a springboard to talk about spiritual concepts that are familiar to us, but to consider them from a fresh perspective. When I was originally putting this series together in my mind, I had eight or ten principles that we could draw out of this TV show and see in the Word of God. And they grouped themselves very nicely into three nice sermons that, well, organizationally they were nice. I don't know how whether you enjoyed them or not, but they, uh, we had the building a firm foundation and counting the cost of starting a project and uh, continuing faithfully to the ends and keeping our eyes on the better future that's ahead. But there were some pieces that didn't fit. They didn't go into any of those buckets, and they don't go with each other, and there's barely enough scripture to make anything out of them. We're going to be doing one of those this morning, but we are going to be in God's word, and we can be expecting him to speak to us through his word and for his spirit to be doing his work in our hearts to uh, stir us up and fill us with a longing to know God more, see more of his glory, and follow more closely after him. So with that as our goal, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we have this morning that we can go to your word and uh, see something of what you would have for us. I pray that we would become more and more aware of all that you are, and all that you've done so that we can follow more closely after you. Lord, I pray that this would not just be a collection of my best thoughts on a subject that I care about, but this would actually be you speaking through your word to your people this morning. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We won't have one main text, but we're going to have a few verses from there this morning. And while you're turning, go with me in your imaginations one last time to a Mike Holmes job site. He's been working hard to deliver this family from uh, the wreck of a house that they were in into a beautiful, uh, newish, newer, remodeled, safe home. He's solidified and fortified the foundation. He's explained to the homeowners all the challenges and costs that are going to be involved. He has cleaned out all that hazardous junk that doesn't belong in a safe house. And now the end is in sight. But as you and Mike have progressed through this project. You've started to notice something a little bit disturbing about the homeowner. Most episodes, these are normal people, just nice, 
Canadians that caught a bad break with the house that they are in and their original contractor. And once Mike gets everything fixed up, they'll be good to go and back to normal. But every once in a while, there is an episode where you watch these people, this family, and you realize that housing is not their biggest problem. There are deeper issues going on in these people's lives than just the kitchen that doesn't have a floor or the windows that don't keep the weather on the outside. And you want Mike to take these people by the shoulders and shake them and say, look, lady, I can fix your house, but it's going to take more than power tools and granite countertops to fix you. And one episode in particular had this elderly couple that looked perfectly normal, except that their house was falling apart around them. And once the camera crew got inside, it was immediately obvious these people are compulsive hoarders and the brick falling off and the yard that's being overgrown and the moisture problems were just symptoms of an underlying reality, a bigger problem. And Mike knew that he could fix that house as good as new. But if the underlying mental health issues weren't addressed, he would just be wiping the slate clean so that the process could start all over again. That illustrates the key premise that we'll be starting with this morning. A house is just a house. It doesn't change who you are on the inside. Changing your circumstances does not change who you are. Put the opposite way around in the uh, form of one of the lies of the enemy. You can solve hard internal heart problems simply by using easy exterior solutions. You can change something on the inside by adjusting something on the outside. And it's easy to believe because we want it to be true, but it prevents us from actually making progress in the Christian life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We've all been in a place in our lives where we've felt some sort of dissatisfaction and discontentment, and we've boiled it down to this one thing. If only this one thing were different, then I'd be happy. And uh, so you can get a new haircut and feel better about your appearance for a couple of weeks until you get used to it. You can get new shoes or a new suit and feel pretty sharp for a while until it's not new anymore. You can go on vacation and escape the cares of your daily life until you have to come back home and everything gets back to normal just the way it was before. You can get a new hobby, get an education, get a new job, get more money, remodel your house, move to a different state, get married, have kids. All good things, all great things, if done for the right reason, but none of them are going to change you at your core. The sin that you're struggling with and the problems you're trying to hide. We've all experienced this, the disappointment that comes not from unmet expectations, but the disappointment that comes from expectations that were met and yet failed to live up to their promise. I thought things were going to be different once I achieved my goal, but they're not. It's still the same. And this is easy to see and understand when it's somebody on TV in a different country or when it's uh, presented in a superficial way uh, in our lives like that. But I want us to see this morning how this might show up in our lives right here in, in Hamilton County. Not only how it might show up, but how it does show up right here at Prairie View. But before I make this hit home, let's get some scriptural principles under our feet so that we have some place to stand. Let's consider the contrasting example, the person that we want to be like. We're going to go and hear from the Apostle Paul. Paul had two transformative experiences in his life. The first one, uh, starting in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, he was this man who was angry and ambitious, fearful, greedy, and self-righteous. And then in chapter 9, God stops him on a highway. Jesus stops him right where he is and saves him on the spot. So, did Paul immediately go and start turning the world upside down for Christ? No. No. He disappeared for years 
he went back home, not to Jerusalem where he had studied and worked, but he went back home to his family home in Tarsus. And he went back to making tents and he stayed there for years until he received an invitation to go to the church in Antioch and be an elder there. So he went there. He continued making tents for a living and he preached the word and he engaged in ministry and he served that congregation. Those years, maybe as many as 15 or 20, scripture doesn't say a whole lot about what went on then. But we can tell from looking at his later life that they were not wasted years. This was time of spiritual training and spiritual preparation because God came to that church in Antioch and said to the elders, set aside two of you for my purposes, set aside Paul and Barnabas. They're going to go on a journey for me. They're going to plant churches and go and take the gospel places that has never been taken and preach it to people that have never heard it. And that's exactly what happened. That was the second transformative experience that changed the course of Paul's life. And that's exactly what he did from city to city and from journey to journey. He took the gospel to new places and new people. And we can see that those earlier times, those earlier years, were getting him ready for the trials and tribulations of being a church planter and an apostle, an author of scripture. He wrote this letter to the Philippians from prison rather late in his life. He was in shackles and he did not know when or whether he was going to be released or when, whether he was going to be executed. Now, did Paul allow his external circumstances to affect his disposition, his disposition, his attitude, his demeanor? We'll see for ourselves, but the answer is no. He knew the work that God had given him to do, and he went about doing it, whether the circumstances were easy or hard. Let's see what he has for himself from chapter one of Philippians. We're going to begin in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul knew which side his bread was buttered on. He knew that the purpose of his life, the Christian life, was not about pleasing himself or pleasing others, but about pleasing God. And God had given him the grace and the strength to face these challenges with the proper attitude and perspective. Of course, God did not simply give him that grace by a magical bop on the head, but through the years of training and discipleship and the spiritual disciplines that we have talked about these last two weeks here at Prairie View. That's why I was careful to say earlier that uh, changing circumstances don't automatically change who we are because we can see in the word and we can see in our lives that God will use circumstances to grow you and sanctify you and make you more like Christ. But it doesn't happen automatically. It's an opportunity that has to be seized and taken advantage of. Now, Paul was so fully sold out to the idea of serving Christ that he was able to view even his own death from an eternal perspective. Talking later in the same chapter about whether he would ever go free, he says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If Paul gets to go free, then he knew that he would get to go back to doing right what it was that he was doing beforehand, preaching the gospel and ministering to the churches that he had established. But if he dies, then he gets the go straight to heaven card, go straight into the presence of the Savior. So which would he prefer? Which would he want? And what power does Rome have over him if they've got him in jail facing execution and he is torn between the two? Continue in verse 22. Yet which I shall choose, which I prefer is what that means. I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart 
and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Speaking personally, he'd really rather die and go to heaven and be with Jesus. But he realizes that God has given him a job to do in the here and now, and that while that work is incomplete, he will probably not die just yet. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Notice that the pleasantness or unpleasantness of his jail experience, while real, did not factor into the calculations that he was making here. He didn't say, oh man, the shackles are really tight today, the soldier next to me, he stinks, the food is bad, it's cold, my iPhone doesn't get very good service down here. That is not what was going through his mind. His attitude was, in prison, serve Christ. Out of prison, serve Christ. Go home and be with Jesus, get to be with Jesus. He's in a can't-lose situation because the situation is not what matters to him. He knows that he can do God's work, whatever the circumstances are that he finds himself in. It doesn't mean that prison wasn't miserable. It just means that his misery didn't affect the, uh, his attitude the way it might have earlier in his life. Flip over now to chapter 4, over in verse 11 through 13. This is a different section, moving away from talking about his physical discomfort and incarceration over to his financial lack, deprivation. The Philippians, although poor themselves, had sent Paul a financial gift to help support him and his ministry. And he's going to thank them, but he's going to do it in a very odd way. When our missions team sends money to the folks that we support, we want to know that that money is helpful to them and useful to them and significant in their lives and appreciated. And Paul's going to write a thank you section here and uh, we'll look at what he has to say. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that is a verse we love to put on our coffee cups and put on the wall and write it on the inside cover of our copies of Decathlon for Dummies that we got a couple weeks ago. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in a sense, that's true, because without Christ, we are dead in sin. We can do nothing like branches cut off from the vine. And through Christ, we can do anything that he wants to do through us. But Paul is not talking about generalities. He's not giving us a verse to put on our coffee cups. He's talking about something specific, finances. Philippians, you've sent me this gift, and I'm grateful, but you did not provide me contentment by sending this gift. God taught me contentment through this suffering, and your gift was just another wonderful expression of his grace in our lives. That's only half of what Paul said. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me being brought low, and how to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. How many people in this nation, in the West, have not learned the secret of facing plenty? How many people have chased after financial gain and material wealth and achieved it and then discovered financial prosperity does not bring contentment? The pattern of human history is quite the opposite. The more that you have, the more that you want and increasing your uh, material possessions usually leads to an, an increase in discontentment and dissatisfaction. 
Paul had learned how to be content with little and how to be content with much. Moving from a position of abundance to a position of deprivation did not crush him. And moving from a place of poverty to a place of plenty did not fill him with greed. He was a content person, regardless of his surroundings. And that is the exact opposite of the character that we saw on television before, or the person in this room who's placing all their hopes in a change of circumstances. The person who thinks that all the angst of their soul will evaporate if only their uh, circumstances of life will change. They get a better house or a better job or a better spouse, whatever. Okay, now it's time to hit you where it hurts. Paul was able to speak openly about his finances, but we don't. In Hamilton County, it's not appropriate to talk about how much money you do or do not have. But time, on the other hand, we can quite freely talk about time and how we don't have any. And we're so stretched for it and we're so busy. It is a sign of status and significance that... You have no time left, that my time is so valuable and so useful that I don't have any left for you. It's a statement of superiority. The idea of leaving margin in our schedules is about as popular as the idea of having six months emergency reserves in your savings account. Everybody agrees it's a great idea, but very, very few have taken the steps necessary over time to get there. So two weeks ago, I preached on putting sin to death and that the way to do it is through the old fashioned means of uh, time-honored Bible study, prayer, spiritual disciplines, and uh, time in the Word, Scripture memory, meditation, self-control, all that wonderfully fun stuff. Those are the tools that we need to get the job done, and they lead us where we want to go, to strangling and suffocating and starving sin in our lives. And folks would nod their head and say, yep, good message, thank you for preaching that, way to go, Joshua. And then the next week, Last week, Pastor Riddle comes and he gives the natural follow-up sermon. What's it going to take to get the spiritual disciplines going in your life? If you're going to be making time in your schedule for Bible study and prayer, then something else is going to have to go and get set aside. Not just sin. We know that sin has to go under any circumstances. But maybe we're going to have to give up something harmless or something helpful, even something good, in order to make room for things that are even more important. Because I'm not going to look at my calendar and find 30 spare minutes simply by saying, oh my goodness, I'm, the only way I'm going to do that is to give up 20 minutes of twiddling my thumbs and 10 minutes of watching paint dry. My schedule was fully allocated when I walked into that church service, and I'm guessing that yours was too, probably. So when he shows up and starts talking about setting aside the Twinkie and making room in my life for spiritual disciplines, I feel my heart saying, how am I supposed to do that? Who does this guy think he is telling me to change my schedule? When I was the one the week before who was saying it was absolutely necessary to wage war against sin in my life by building the spiritual disciplines. I spent 37 minutes telling this congregation how it was necessary for the health and growth and safety of your Christian life, that we need to respond to the love that God has shown us and the grace that he's given us. And we want to do that because he does love us. And we want to uh, know him more and love him more and follow him more closely. And the very next week, I am resisting the most basic steps to make that possible. I think if there's one phrase that captures uh, this attitude of, that's going to happen, but it'll happen later, and eventually it'll happen by itself. It's summed up like this. Things will be different then. You hear this so often. This is what we tell ourselves to uh, excuse the chaos in our lives. And, and it goes like this. Things are super busy right now. But once school gets out, then things will calm down. Well, things have been a little crazy this month. 
But once the kids get back in school, then things will get back under control. You know, things are crazy this week, this month, but soon the holidays will be here and then everything will relax. And, and you know, it's this perpetual kicking the can down the road. We know that our schedules are jammed up and out of whack, but we tell ourselves that things will change simply by the turning of a few pages on the calendar. You just wait. Once this project at work gets wrapped up, then I'll have more time at home with you guys. You know, once, once we get through the holidays, then we'll be able to get back into a small group. Once the search for senior minister is over, then things will get back to normal around here, as though normal ever existed. And it's the same old lie from the enemy, that things will automatically improve on the inside only by changing the outside. But unless we intentionally make it happen, the change we're hoping for never comes. If you're old enough to remember, or maybe you listened to this music when you were growing up, if you were younger, Cats in the Cradle, song from 40 years ago about how the dad always says to the son, we'll get together then. We're going to have a good time then. Well, it's not just about parenting. It's about anything that we want to make a priority in our life, but we have a hard time doing so because there's so many other demands that get in the way. Anything that we want to prioritize is going to have challenges like that. If you have problems with time management, then the passage of time is not going to spontaneously make that better. If you're somebody who can't say no when somebody invites you to do something, then you're always going to be overcommitted. If you try to do too much, then every time one activity wraps up, you'll already have two more underway to take its place, perpetuating and deepening the cycle. And that person who's trapped in that mindset, and it may be many of us, heard last week's message and thought, great. 30 minutes a day, one more thing that I have to add to the schedule, one more thing that's not going to fit. And there goes the preacher guilting me into doing, doing, doing more for God. But the whole point of the message was that we have to continually and regularly take stock of our schedules, examine what we're doing and why, and identify even those good things that we're doing that don't necessarily need to continue so that we can make room for the things that we know that we want to be doing, that we know in our heads are higher priorities. I want to be careful not to uh, overcommit to my point or oversell my argument because I know some of you already are fighting this fight against uh, craziness and busyness and overcommitment in your life. So don't take offense if you're already doing this. Just take it as a good reminder to keep up the good work and don't let it slip because things won't get better all by themselves, but they do have a way of falling apart all by themselves. I also want to acknowledge that God in his Wisdom sometimes will intervene and break into our lives and swamp us with circumstances that are beyond our control. Uh, when mom's in the hospital or there's an illness or there's a fire or the state comes in and relocates your business, then that's God doing his work in his way in your life. And if you thought that maybe last week's message didn't apply to you, if you're exempt from that because of some special circumstance in your life, well, maybe this is the time when you need to be leaning on him even more if you're going through some sort of crisis. I chose to preach this message today because this is the back to school season. And most of us have some connection to the rhythm of the academic calendar. And even if you don't, there's some other set of cycles and seasons in your life. And when you shift from one season to the next, it's a good practical opportunity to take stock of where you are and what your priorities are and make the necessary adjustments to make your operational values fall into line with your held values, what you say that you value. If your schedule is already going to be adapting to some new reality, then it's a good opportunity to implement some further changes 
because stuff's already happening. You're already changing things. It's a good opportunity to cut off habits that you don't wish to continue so that you can implement ones you wish to develop. If your schedule is too full to do the things that you know are important this week, then there's no reason to think that next week is going to be any different unless you intentionally choose to make it so. And that means sometimes changing and reprioritizing and sometimes things get deprioritized uh, and, and that can be make for hard, sober decisions. School started this week in our household. Tuesday, we were on summer mode. Wednesday, we were on back to school mode. And so it gave me the opportunity to address and rectify some of the sloppiness that had crept into my schedule over the summer and reestablish the sort of order and rhythm and routine that I know that I need to, to thrive. But that's an opportunity I'm going to have to actively pursue. It's not going to happen by itself. I can be just as lazy and undisciplined after taking Bree to school and dropping her off as I could be if I never had to leave the house in the first place. And it's something that I'm hoping and intending and maybe I'll even get to trying to address. Right now I'm stuck on hoping and intending. This message is probably as much for me as it is for any of you, that this is an opportunity for me to make my mornings and my afternoons and my evenings a little more regular so that I can make time for things that I know to be important, like uh, the study of God's word. And this is going to look different for each of us. Something that we can all do to help each other is to get involved in small groups. I know. Great. One more thing to add to the schedule, right? Well, this is our opportunity now to make the adjustments that we need to make in order to be ready for small group when it starts in three weeks after Labor Day. Find a small group and get involved because small groups are an excellent way to be doing the things that we say that we want to be doing. Spending time in prayer, spending time with other believers, spending time studying God's word. And if you make yourself ready for it now, then you can hit the ground running and be ready week one on time with your study ready and, and ready to discuss. It's not just that we want to be doing a bunch of religious activity because we're church people and religious activity is what we do. It, it's important not to lose sight of the point of all this, that the, the God who created the universe and made us and revealed himself to us and is working to gather a people, the same God who sent his son to the cross to pay for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to him, that God wants to meet with us. He wants to be near to us. He wants to draw near to those who are contrite and broken and humble. And the way that he has ordained that we should meet with him is by getting alone with him in his word and with time in prayer. And we can be near to him and he draws near to us when we draw near to him. And that gives us the opportunity to be growing in the spiritual life so that we can also grow in our family life and our small group life and our church life and help each other be actively pursuing our walk with Christ. This is a time of year when we can make steps to make that pursuit more active. Paul didn't learn contentment by accident. He had to be trained one step at a time. I am not going to learn to love God more and cherish the Savior's work more deeply simply by accident. It's going to take effort on my part, building the habits of spending time in the word on a daily basis. You are not going to grow in godliness and be putting sin to death simply by accident. It doesn't happen by itself. We don't set aside time in our schedule, time that we're already spending doing something else that's probably good and useful. We don't turn that time over to to uh, studying God's word and seeking closer communion with him in prayer, 
then nothing's going to change. And it's just not going to change by itself with the passage of time. I'm going to wrap up with one last scripture from Philippians. Paul did not leave us clueless about what he wanted. Back in chapter 1, he said this, and this is what we're going to close with in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That sort of thing comes from spending time in God's word so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to you in your word, that you are God that reveals yourself to us and that you answer those who call out to you. I thank you that as we this week come to you as a church and then later on come to you as individuals and humble ourselves before your word, that you will meet with us. That that is something you long to do. And I pray, Lord, that you be giving this people the desire to move more closely into your presence and to know more of you. And that you would be honoring that desire by making it possible for us to uh, spend time in your word, giving us the opportunities this week and, and giving us the desire to seize those opportunities and then blessing us with a rich time of fellowship with you. I pray that we can all spend great time in your word and in prayer with you this week so that when we gather again in this place next week and hear another message from your word, that we can be that much closer to you and that much more excited to be in your presence with your people. I thank you that you are God who saves us and not just saves us, but draws us closer to you in communion. And thank you that you are bringing us home to the day when we will be with you in person. And that will be all our joy. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. This world is not my home. Oh, this world is not my home.